Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stamor Major. In this episode, we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail, and we're on Chapter 10. Chapter 10 Among the Leaves Fade far away, dissolve and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known the weariness, the fever, and the fret here where men sit and hear each other groan. A quote from Keats. Good God, said the young lady, a white man. The surprise was mutual. A white woman was the last person I had expected to see when I knocked on the door of the district officer's hut. We have come to report to the district officer, I said, after introducing myself. Last night we slept at a small settlement down river, and this morning paddled up by canoe. I'm Mrs. Seger, the woman replied, bearing up remarkably well. Part of my surprise, but you are the first white people who have ever dropped in on us unexpectedly like this. We would have been unusual visitors in any setting, for our appearance was certainly bizarre. My trousers were rent and ragged, and besides a battered old hat, I wore a hideously striped football jersey, which I later learnt was most envied by all the Indians in the vicinity. Mr. Sager, a tall, handsome man, came out to greet us and shepherded us inside. Perhaps, he said, when a pot of water for tea was bubbling over the wood fire, perhaps you would like to make our camp your headquarters while you are up here. We can offer you an open-sided shelter in which you could sling your hammocks and you would be very welcome. We accepted gladly. On the first morning, we awoke to find ourselves the centre of attraction for a mixed Indian audience. Few things are more embarrassing than to open bleary eyes and encounter the unblinking stares of a little knot of men and women. Moreover, it soon became apparent that the sleeping and snoring they had just witnessed was only the overture, and that the show itself was to be our clambering out of our hammocks and washing and dressing. Though the hammocks were comfortable, the show had to go on, so Ernest and I arose and dressed and completed our toilet and watched the wide, expressionless faces. No doubt we had provided conversational matter to last them till the end of the rainy season. The camp, which lay among the tree stumps of a small clearing, was to be the scene of a new government outpost among the Mary Indians. There would be a small dispensary and trade store, and a bungalow would replace the log hut, which was now both the store and Sega's home. Though we were high on the tablelands of the interior, there was not a breath of wind among the trees. Overhead, the clouds seemed to swing through the treetops, but below the living thatch of the jungle, no leaf stirred. The river's surface slid glassily past, and the only sound in the camp came from the biting ring of axes and the swish and thud of falling trees where the bush was being cleared. The little trade store carried a stock of such things as fish hooks and bush knives, needles and gaily coloured cloth. No food was sold as an effort was being made to encourage a more methodical form of agriculture. Money with which to buy these goods at specially low prices was obtained from the sale of fruit and vegetables and basket work. The Indians are surprisingly astute buyers, and a package of hooks will be sprinkled over the counter and each one minutely examined before acceptance. They are honest in their dealings with individuals, but in the store they will gladly grab a roll of cloth when Mrs. Sager's back is turned and rock with laughter when they are caught. This sense of humour is quite unpredictable, 
They may resist every conscious effort to make them laugh, yet if you were to crush your thumb with a hammer, it might be the funniest thing that had happened since Grandpa was bitten by a snake. One of the Sega's duties involved periodic tours of those parts of the reserves which lay within reach by canoe, and while we were there, one of these trips was arranged. The narrow official dugout canoe was loaded with the gear necessary for a three-day journey, and then Ernest and I, Mr. and Mrs. Sega, two Indian boys, and an enormous Newfoundland dog named Capitan, carefully lowered ourselves into the canoe and peered anxiously at the water which lapped close to our white knuckles. Representing the government as we did, we had science on our side, and our boat was powered by an outboard motor which sent us pulsing round the bend of the river. Our journey took us deep into the territory that lay towards the Brazilian border. So little known was this area that the map which Ernest and I had borrowed from a government department had to be altered as we went along. We visited little villages lying by the river and at the farthest point stayed for the night at the only mission in the area, one belonging to a North American sect. Only once was the river blocked by rapids. We unloaded the canoe and carried our baggage to a landing place farther along the bank. Then we returned and waded into the rushing water to struggle with the heavy canoe among the rocks. Sometimes the current caught it broadside and wedged it against a boulder. Sometimes we had to fight to avoid being swept back to our starting point. But eventually we scrambled through the last patch of broken water and paddled into a quiet pool. We were naturally very interested in the bark canoes, which were used by the Indians themselves. For some reason, dugouts are not used much in the mountains of the interior, perhaps because the rivers are always smooth and something less seaworthy will suffice. The craft which have been developed are called woodskins and are a wonderful example of a boat which evolved to fit a particular set of circumstances. The Indian found that the huge purple heart tree had a tough, fibrous bark, which, after preliminary pummeling, could be stripped from the bowl of the tree as a long half-cylinder. This already bore some resemblance to a boat if something could be done to keep the water out of the open ends. Instead of blocking these ends, he decided to raise them a few inches, which required a pleat of some sort near each. So about five feet from bow and stern, a vertical cut was made extending a few inches down from the upper edge, and as the ends were raised, the lips of the cuts slid over each other and were then sewn in position with thin creeper. But the cuts themselves had to be watertight, and here, a property of the bark itself was brought into play. The cut severs the thick outer layer of the bark, but does not pierce the thin, pliable inner skin which folds over itself and makes a watertight pleat. Imagining ourselves to be sailors, Ernest and I were eager to test our skill with these canoes. We took one each, settled ourselves comfortably, grasped a paddle and gave a firm stroke. The immediate result was a slight touch of vertigo and not a yard of forward motion. The woodskins, perched on top of the water, spun violently round and progressed in a tight circle. But with a little perseverance we began to appreciate how fast and how manoeuvrable these craft are and how ideal for the role of jungle jalopy which they fill. For seven days this peaceful little clearing among the leaves was our home. The river which passed silently past our door joined the Marazuni a few yards beyond it. Then it slumbered away to be rudely awakened as it thundered over the brink of the vast escarpment. Recovering itself after the fall, it wound swelling as it went through the isolated diamond fields, 
through the flat jungles, past the coppered hull of content, and joined the Essequibo for its final run to the sea. Thus, in front of us, passed the only highway between the fringes of civilization in the plains and the Indian reserves around us. The positioning of the camp was not accidental. One of the district officer's tasks was to act as sentinel and watch for unwanted adventurers from the diamond fields. The Indian girls are often very attractive and might entice the pork knockers up over the trail. Most of the women who have come into contact with the tentacles of civilization have tried to imitate its dress, but some in our area and many in the deep interior wear nothing but the traditional little bread apron in which the beads are often worked into geometric designs. This beadwork is thought to have been learned from the early Spanish explorers, who also increased the very limited vocabulary of the Indians by adding words for hitherto unknown objects such as hats, shoes and dogs. The origin of the Indians is somewhat obscure, and the absence of any written language makes its discovery difficult. They are a short, stocky people with light brown skins. Their slightly mongoloid features indicate that many thousands of years ago, their ancestors may have made the hazardous journey from the overcrowded valleys of Asia, across the Alaskan bridgehead, and down the American continent. It seems probable, however, that they have not been in Guyana itself for many centuries, for they have peculiarly little cultural or traditional background, and practically no art or religion. In place of the latter, there is the power wielded by the P.I., or medicine man, and the fear of a vague overall power called Kanaema. This word is also impossible to translate accurately. It seems to refer not to a definite god, but rather to an ever-present nemesis which lurks behind the lives of everyone. The Kanaema which now bothered Ernest and me was time. We had arranged that the bateau which had carried us to the foot of the trail should return for us fourteen days later, and now with three days left, it was time for us to return. Mr. Sager found two good guides, Jacob and David, for us, and leaving the Sagers anxiously awaiting the monthly flying boat which landed on a broad stretch of the river with supplies and mail, we set off down the trail. Jacob and David came of less sophisticated stock than our other guides, and were consequently more skilled woodsmen. Our chief delight, however, was the discovery that our baggage and stores could now be carried comfortably by the guides alone, leaving Ernest and myself free to tramp the trail in relative comfort. Before very long, I had good reason to bless the skill of our guides. It was the tear in my trouser leg which started it all. The trousers were now rent as high as the knee and flapping about as I walked. Telling Ernest that I would catch up with him in a few minutes, I stopped and tied up the leg with a piece of creeper. It took me only a minute, and then I set off in pursuit of the others, who had already disappeared among the trees. The trail was almost imperceptible, and I had gone no more than fifty yards before I realised that there was no longer any track ahead of me, only dead leaves and gnarled roots. I gave a shout. No answer. My voice fell flat amongst the foliage. I was lost. I pondered for a moment. Better try and find the trail, I thought to myself, and selecting a large tree as centre, I ranged in every direction. The sole result was that it was only with the greatest difficulty that I found my tree again. It is extraordinary how easy it is to lose one's sense of direction in a forest of this kind. I sat down and considered the position again. One thing was vital. Whatever happened, I must keep within earshot of the trail. So when I started out again, I drew my sheath knife and feeling very self-conscious, marked each tree as I went. 
Even then I did not at first realise that to be of any use the marks must be on the side of the tree which would be visible on my return. It was as well that I took this precaution, for without it I would have been lost again. During this time I had been giving a shout every half minute. I decided there was nothing more I could do but wait, so I settled down and continued whittling a walking stick I had been making. In another hour or so, it would be growing dark, and though there appeared to be very few snakes up here, I did not relish the prospect of sleeping on the ground and acting as a sort of snack bar for the inch-long ants which I had seen from time to time. Fifteen minutes went by without a sound. Twenty. Then suddenly I thought I heard a faint call in answer to mine. I gave another, and this time there was no mistake. The sound was coming closer. Another call and then Ernest and David pushed through the bush. Once having realised that I was missing, David had walked back along the track, which had been quite invisible to me, glancing casually to left and right. He had stopped at the very point at which I had gone astray, and then had simply tracked me, with no mud or bare earth to take footprints, to the tree under which I was sitting. This tracking skill was sometimes quite uncanny. As we trudged along, the guides would often stop and point to the ground where some faint mark, still quite undistinguishable to us, told them of the passage of one of the small inhabitants of the jungle. Sometimes without pausing to lift the heavy packs from their backs, they would slide noiselessly into the undergrowth. Not the snap of a twig or the whisper of a leaf told of their passing. Several times as I sat waiting for them to reappear, I was startled to find one of the Indians standing silent and impassive behind me, waiting for me to continue. Once again, we prepared evening shelters and kindled our fires. Jacob and David carried no food other than the dry, flat cassava bread and some sugar. When we stopped for the evening, they would disappear, and if we heard the report of their crazy old flintlock, a greater danger we thought to the marksman than to the target, we knew that they would return with a few small birds. Once, they brought a bundle of little fish gleaming from the brook, and we wondered how those fish ever reached that stream above the escarpment. When we saw them return empty-handed, with only cassava and sugar water for their supper, we took pity and gave them some of our carefully rationed corned beef. As we approached the end of the trail on the third day, we gradually became aware of the distant rumble of the Swallowtail Falls. For many hours the sound grew, throbbing and swelling, until it dominated the senses, and then we were looking over the falls themselves. The river came swirling over the edge, boiled and tumbled on another ledge and toppled over the brink. Down, down it fell until the solid sheet of water started to disintegrate and disappeared into the deep gorge where trees were dwarfed by the mists of spray and the river seemed a white trickle among the rocks. A drop three and a half times as high as Niagara, yet we heard that a district officer had recently lived down the river for two years without knowing that the falls existed. It was nearly noon, when we reached the Kurumpung River at the foot of the trail and stumbled down the last hill, we went down to the little sandy beach at which we had first landed and within 20 minutes heard the sound of an engine and saw the bateau swinging round the bend of the river. We watched the captain wielding his huge steering paddle and Smithy grinning his welcome as the boat sidled over to the bank and leaned its bluff bow on the beach. Once again we were among our friends, the pork knockers, and we decided to have a closer look at the diamond fields before returning to content. Ernest and I were armed with a prospecting license in case we were lured into the diamond game, but we decided that prospecting and digging would be worthwhile only if we were prepared to spend several months at it. Even then it would be a gamble, 
so we satisfied ourselves with watching others doing the work and were content to leave Mother Nature with her gems. The Indians who come in from the coast to try digging are usually penniless, so the storekeeper of the settlement, who must do everything possible to attract men to his area, supplies the new arrival, on credit, with the provisions and simple tools he will require for two weeks in the bush. Having located a spot in which a layer of gravel lies within a few feet of the surface, he does this by prodding with a rod, the pork knocker digs a small hole and carefully washes and examines the gravel he produces. If he finds promising indications, red particles of jasper for instance, or black ones of tin, he can hope that diamonds are in the area. He then digs a pit, perhaps six feet square, and washes the pay dirt in a small wooden trough, raking it over a metal plate in which holes have been punched. This has separated the gravel from the larger pebbles, which are now thrown away. The residue is shoveled into a fine hand sieve and washed again to remove the final traces of earth. The climax comes when he bursts the sieve, examining the gravel in it for the diamonds themselves. Of course, usually there is no diamond in the sieve, and he may dig for days or even weeks without finding one. He leads a hard life out there in the bush with one or two companions, and when the pork knocker does find a few stones and can pay the storekeeper's bill, the settlement throbs with his celebrations. We found these men to be a likeable, friendly crowd who drank when they could and worked when they must. They are all without money, for any which may be left over after the initial party is soon scooped up by the prostitutes who come up from Georgetown, and of whom every settlement has its quota. These women were a really brash, tough collection, who with their quarrellings and stabbings caused the authorities more trouble than the men. Not very long before our arrival, a girl had been so badly ripped to pieces by her companions that when the native doctor arrived, they were already preparing to bury her and were quite indignant when he halted the proceedings. She recovered. We were travelling on a bateau from one settlement to another on one occasion and behind me, one of the most popular of the girls, nicknamed after a favourite Georgetown racehorse, had been accompanying her flirtations with a barrage of screams. Suddenly I realised that she had been silent for fully five minutes and I turned round to see what had wrought the miracle. I found that she was reading a book, and being curious to see what it was, I leaned over to see. It was the Bible. Even though we were not finding any diamonds ourselves, Ernest and I were seeing them in large quantities. We journeyed by bateau to little stores in hidden settlements, and watched the stones rustling out of the small cloth bags which lived in the storekeeper's safes. We fingered the glittering stones, and the dull, the metallic white and the dirty brown and black. Our presence in the area had caused some interest for visitors are rare. One ancient and decrepit looking local introduced himself as the representative of a Georgetown paper. As soon as he heard that Ernest's name was Chamberlain, he asked him if he were related to the ex-Prime Minister of Britain and he was not at all discouraged by Ernest's denial of any close relationship of which he was aware. Well, Mr. Chamberlain, I'm very glad to see you up here he said in the curious sing-song accent of the country. And tell me, Mr. Churchill, uh, Chamberlain, said Ernest. Uh, oh yes, Chamberlain, what do you think of our country, Mr. Chamberlain? Throughout our stay in the area, there were many who thought that the son of the ex-Prime Minister was touring the diamond fields, and since I was seen to spend a great deal of time writing in a notebook, it was assumed that I was his secretary. On the day after our interview, however, the pride of the newspaper representative suffered a crippling blow, when we came upon him unexpectedly wheeling a barrow full of garbage. It was time now to return to content, 
So we left Tumarang, the centre of the district, boarded a bateau, and in two days' time were clambering into the truck which would bump us back to Bartica and, relatively speaking, civilization. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.